I'm one of these guys that just likes to do some extreme stuff, um, whether it's parasailing, jet skiing, all those crazy things that you do. And I've got my family to do it on, on numerous occasions to do it, jumping off, you know, decks and stuff like that. Just, just doing uh, stuff that's accelerating, but also exciting. Um, my family sometimes is hesitant to do these things. Um, I think the hot air balloon kind of killed uh, my wife and daughter because it, the heat messed up their hair. God forbid. God forbid, God forbid the hair. <laughs> but but we, um, we decided to go hiking. And, and um, I'm not a hiking guy. Um, you know, if I wear Tim's, I wear, you know, jeans, and it's more urban wear than, you know, anything else. But we decided to go to Palisades. Everybody went to the Palisades. Right? It's, it's, it's this beautiful view from the Hudson River, and they have these trails over there. And my family, I think I shared a story with some of the guys in the room, but I, uh, we went on this trail, and I said, hey, let's go on this trail. And on this trail, they began to announce that there was this waterfall. I'm hyped, waterfall. So, you know, we're taking this trail, and, and you know, there's, there's a, when you get to the fork in the road, you decide whether you're gonna go this trail, and the other one's a little more difficult. And of course, you know, the Rodriguez's gotta take the more difficult road. You know what I mean? So we decided to go that way. And as I'm climbing up, you know, I'm thinking about this waterfall. The signs are saying waterfall, waterfall. People are coming down and I say, hey, is it waterfall? And they say, yeah, the waterfall, keep going. And I'm climbing up and I, I firmly believe that I thought I was gonna die. Like, these trails were like, I was climbing and climbing, I'm looking at my family and they're laughing and I'm saying, they're setting me up for something, they're gonna kill me, these people are gonna kill me here, <laughs> right? So, so I'm climbing up and climbing up and people are coming down smiling, they're talking about the trail and you know, and, and, and hey, is the waterfall this way? He says, yeah, keep going, keep going. Well, we get to the waterfall and this is how much water was coming out of the waterfall. You know what got me? That people were coming down and telling me, yeah, keep going, keep going. I, nobody warned me about this waterfall, that all it was was a little spurt coming out of a rock. Absolutely. But sometimes there are things that we pursue, there are things that we want, there are things that we go after with such a zeal, and when we get there, they're not what we thought it would be. Some of us pursue relationships, some of us pursue careers, some of us pursue things, and then when we get there, we find ourselves, not only that it's not what we expected, but sometimes we find ourselves alone. And the Bible says, what should it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his... You can fill in the blank. The scripture says soul, but what is it? When someone pursues success and career so much that they sacrifice their family or they sacrifice their integrity because they're entering into compromise and they enter into illicit behavior that kind of goes with the territory. Politics seems to be that, isn't it? Like you go into, you get this office and you say, I'm gonna make a difference and then you get in there with the sharks and you're like, oh man, I gotta swim the sharks or get out of the water. Well, the story today that I'm gonna share with you guys, it's the story of this guy by the name of Zacchaeus. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this guy's a chief tax collector. And one of the titles that was placed upon people at that time was what they did as a profession. 
He was a chief tax collector, and you have to understand something about that position. At that time, the Roman Empire ruled, right? The sun never set on the Roman Empire, right? So they ruled, and one of the things they did was they hired someone to collect their taxes, okay? They hired someone to collect their taxes. This guy had the title of chief tax collector. In the process of him collecting the taxes for the Rome, the way that he got paid was he had to add his fee to what was already being collected. So not only is he collecting for the Rome and empire, but he's also collecting for himself. He gets to this place, obviously, in his position of power, in his position of success. And he winds up alone. So I'm going to read the story. And it's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you can stand during the reading of God's word. Again, it's not an exercise of calisthenics. It's a reminder that the word of God stands above everything. And we honor it in such a way. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Read as follows. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation. I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A couple of things to point out, like I said, anytime you read scripture, it's important to see what's going on here, the context that it's written in. The other thing that you have to understand and why it's so important for you to listen is because you're responsible for what you know, the truth you know. You can't say you don't know after you know, right? You ever roll up on somebody and they do something really silly and then you ask them, why'd you do it? And they say, I don't know. Well, I tell my kids, if you say, your answer is I don't know, then don't do it. You have to have an explanation for why you do what you do. So you're all responsible for what you hear and what you know and what you read to be true, amen? So today we look at this text and we begin to see that again, Jesus passing through Jericho, Jesus is in full effect, he's ministering throughout the region, he comes across um, and it gives us this story and one of the things it talks here is it says that he was rich. Now, I'm not against rich people, I'm just against rich people attitude, right? Now that's the only thing that, you know, I don't mind rich people, I love rich people, right? Especially when they're generous, Amen. So, but says kids, it gives us his title. He was a chief tax collector. That means that he reached the very pinnacle of his career. He accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. He got to that place where he wanted to get to. 
But then what begins to happen is the Bible tells us that he heard about Jesus because something happens with you pursuing this career, pursuing success. You wind up looking around and there's no one that likes you. No one that gets along with you. That was the key story because now he was hated by his own people because he was working for the Romans and in working for the Romans he was not only collecting taxes for the Romans but they knew that he had to get paid and in getting paid he had to add more to the taxes. Now we all experience taxes, don't we? <laughs> we, we all experience it and it's not a good thing. Before you even get your check there's this gross and then this net and between it it looks like you're working for pennies. Man, so he, you understand that his role was not a endeared role. He was hated. He was despised. The Bible says that he was short of stature, and it's important because he heard of Jesus coming, and he tried to get between the crowd to see him, and everybody saw it was Zacchaeus, and they wouldn't let him in. They kind of, you know, elbowed him out of this process, right? You know, you get out of here. Oh, the tax collector, yo, don't let him in. Get out. So they exerted some power in that moment. But, but then he realized he's going to pass this way, so he thought to himself, okay, how do I get to see Jesus? So he runs ahead, and he jumps into this tree, and he begins to look down as Jesus is coming out. This is really profound, because even when you're alone, even when you are not loved by others, even when you're not cared for by others, even when you feel the burden of having succeeded but not having anyone to share it with, Jesus is there for you. He calls him by name. He says to kids, make haste and come down. This is a divine appointment. Jesus knew he was going to walk through here. Zacchaeus didn't, but Zacchaeus responded to what his need was. He needed to see Jesus, to catch a glimpse of this Galilean who was healing people, who was uh, the blind were, were, were given their sight, they were walking, that the dead were being resurrected, the, the hungry were being fed, the, clothed, the naked were being clothed. There was stuff happening with Jesus, and he felt, if I can only see him. He climbs up this tree and he gets a glimpse of him. He sees him and immediately he calls him by name. What I don't like about this text that, that there's always, as you try to get closer to Jesus, there's always this group of haters that try to pull you back in. In the words of Michael Corleone, I try to get out and they pull me back in. Like, 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 think about this for a moment. It says here, but when they saw it, who is they? They all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And I love the last verse because that's specifically who Jesus came to be with. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is not being lost about a, a, a place, right? It's not about where. It's about in here. When we lose our way, it's not physically so much, but in here, in our hearts, in our minds. God created us to be in relationship with him. Our sin pulls us away from that. So it's not about where you are physically. It's where you are spiritually. He comes to seek that which was lost. And if he was going to be with anybody, it was Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus got so caught up in pursuing his career and his success that he forgot his people. He forgot the God of his people. And in doing so, it made it hard for him not only to worship, but to be around his people because he already had this reputation of being a thief. Like really, if you're padding the books, you're a thief. Not only you're a thief, but you're a liar. 
So here he is, being this sinner, called out by name, comes in, and Jesus meets him. Now listen, the text here doesn't say the conversation that he must have had with Jesus. It only says in verse 8, it jumps from verse 7, where those people complained about him sitting with a sinner, and it jumps to verse 8, and it says, Zacchaeus says this, I give half of my goods to the poor, and I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. I don't know what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. I only know what I've learned about Scripture. The Scripture talks about repentance. It comes with us coming face to face with the truth about us being sinners. Now, it doesn't say anything here, but I'm sure that this divine appointment wasn't Jesus trying to freeload to get a meal. Zacchaeus needed to hear about the love of God, had to know that despite what was going on in his life, that he was loved more than he could imagine, that he was on his mind. He called them by name. He invites them to come into his house. He sits and eats with them. It doesn't document what he says, but I got to tell you that even if Jesus just said, looked him in his eyes and said, I love you, that that would have melted Zacchaeus because he was not feeling loved. He had accomplished what he needed to accomplish as far as his career, but he didn't feel loved by the people around him. I can imagine walking through the streets. They go that chief tax collector. Now, I'm using nice words, right? But, but, but I can imagine him walking down the street and being ridiculed, being criticized, being looked at as less than. Now, I don't know about you, but I heard those words. I heard the words, Jesus loves me, and it moved me to find out about this love. So Zacchaeus has this situation where, you know, he, he says these things and I'm saying, okay, so what must have happened? And what we see here, this, this is a picture of what repentance looks like. So I want to share with you what repentance is not and then what repentance is. We're leading somewhere because we need to sit and have communion in a few minutes. And it's important that you understand what repentance is because there's a concern that I have about sin in the church. There is a concern that I have about how we who know the truth are still behaving in our lives. It's important for us to realize that repentance looks like something. There is a definition that comes with the word repentance. First, what is not repentance? The first thing that repentance is not, it's not an emotion. It's not, oh, I got goosebumps. <laughs> oh, that feels good. That's not what it is. Repentance is not an emotion. Repentance is not saying you're sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. And then repentance is not just a word without any action. It's important for us to understand because oh, often enough, we come to Christ, or we claim we come to Christ with this emotional moment. And then we ride it out, right? Because emotions are like that, right? They take us, and then they drop us, right? They take us, because they're not facts. I, I can't ride out the rest of my life on this emotion. So I get caught up in this emotion, whatever it is. Oh, I love him. Oh, she loves me. Oh, and then reality kicks in, and boom. Right? So, so you have to understand the same thing with anger. How far can you go with anger? Like, how far can you go? I was sitting here last night studying, and I heard the gunshots. 
And I'm saying, oh my God. I got hurt on them right then. Loud and clear. I know they're not fireworks because I'm familiar with gunshots. <laughs> if you grow up in Brooklyn, the Bronx, anywhere in New York, you're familiar with what the gunshots sound like. So, so, so it's so important that we can't get caught up with emotions. So when we're angry, where do you go with it? The Bible tells me I got to go to God. Right? So, so you have to understand that emotions only take us so far. So it's not repentance. Saying you're sorry. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of sorry. I don't want to hear it if you're saying, I don't want to, I didn't, that's the word coming out of your mouth. I don't want to hear it. You know why? Because you're sorry you got caught. You're not sorry that you're feeling anything, that you've offended me, that you offended God. You're just sorry you got caught. And those are the only words that can come out of your mouth at the moment. I'm sorry. I'm done. Take your sorry and, and keep moving. All right? You have to understand that. And then this whole idea of repentance is not a word without any action. What we saw in Zacchaeus is as he had this conversation with Jesus, there was something that happened inside of him that caused him to then act in a way that honored God. Amen? So many understand the term repentance to mean turning from sin. Regretting sin and turning from it is related to repentance, but it's not the precise meaning of the word. The Bible... The word repents in the Bible says to change one's mind. So turning from sin is the action and changing your mind. Paul writes this, and I love what he says. Paul says this, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So, so in other words, when you repent, you're literally not only turning away from sin and towards God, but you also have to demonstrate fruit of your repentance, the action that you're taking. This is not saying, oh, I'm sorry. This is not saying repenting and staying here, oh, I feel bad about what I've done or what's going on in my life. I now have to couple that with action. The first action is turning away with it and then moving towards God. And in moving towards God, there are acts, there are deeds, there are things that I begin to do that honor my repentance. Everybody got that? That's what he says. So, true biblical repentance. There's a word in Greek, and it's referred to the word metanoia. That is the word. And it literally means just that. It means a change of mind that results in a change of action. Let's say that together. A change of mind that results in a change of action. Have you repented? Or have you said you're sorry? Because if you're still doing it, then you haven't truly repented, have you? Mmm, quiet. Think about that for a moment. Because the best illustration I have, and I think this is it here. Uh, for those who are listening, I have two signs on the stage. One is going to be sin and one is going to be God. This is not sin, right? Like this is just an easel with a sign on it. But it's the word sin. And the word sin signifies something. My concern is that some of us claim we repent. But, and we feel remorse and we feel sorry for what we're doing but we still stay here. In fact, some of us even 
take a selfie. And post it on our social media pages. Like we feel bad in the moment. I've done something in the moment. But there's, real no, there's really no action. Right? We, we see that with Judas. Judas realizes he betrays Jesus. But there's really no real action given to his act. Because he goes and kills himself. So, so this idea of sin and, and us circling it and us, you know, color coordinating it and holding it up and, 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 and allowing ourselves to stay in this place, that's not repentance. That's you feeling bad about what you've done and what you continue to do. And here you say, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. And God's already showing us how he is helping us. See, if you're in this place, it's so important because the local church, you have to understand something about the local church. Judgment begins in the church. It doesn't begin outside the church. It begins here with the people that know. And how else is the world to know that God exists if his people are still acting in a particular way and you say, oh, I'm a, I'm a work in progress. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's your sorry. That's your justification and rationalization about what you're doing. So this sin now becomes part of your life. And there are victories that you have momentarily, but then you're back at it. Because there really is no true repentance. See, repentance requires an action. It requires not only to turn away from the sin, but now to move toward God. And in moving towards God, what begins to happen as I get closer to God, it's, it's almost like the dross in my life begins to fall off. There are things that I get closer to God through prayer and through his word that he helps me to see, Gus, you can't be like this anymore. This is not who you are. That garment doesn't fit you anymore. I've given you a garment of praise and of worship and of truth. So, so it's important for us to understand that as we turn away from sin, we're moving towards God. And you heard Ron say that he was the one that turned his back on God. And the church. And because of that, sin became a way of life for him. To the point where you're deceiving the people you love. You really think that Visine and breath mix fools your parents. Really? Does it? I got patted down when I walked into the house. I was like, <laughs> pat me down, right? So just be aware of the fact that what happens is when we turn our back on God, we're moving in a direction. There's no in-between. There's no, okay, let me hang out here for a while. You know what that is? A double-minded person. A person who wants to serve two masters. Right? That, that's what you are hanging out in the middle. You, you, you're a fence dweller. You know what happened to the last person that sat on a fence? His name was Humpty Dumpty. What happened to him? fell, right? Nobody could put him back together again, right? This is not a place for us to hang out. You're either here or you're there. You have to know or you don't know. But the truth of the matter is that when you turn your back on God, you are carousing sin. You're involving yourself in a life. Guys, I've asked this question because the power of the church is lacking because people are not living in repentance. People are living with one hand on sin and trying to stretch People are eating at this table and then want to eat at this table. 
And you have to be mindful of that. That's why you lack the power in your life. Now, you might have some success. You know, you have your career going on, you got a couple of dollars in the bank, you got nice wheels, you got some money in your arms. Yeah, I got all that stuff. But if you're not living a life for Jesus Christ, you're living in sin. You're not a work in progress. It's not about progress. This is about you moving towards God. Let the Holy Spirit work things out in your life. Listen, I stopped cussing. You know why I stopped cursing? Because the word of God came into my life and reminded me that the same mouth that I use to praise God, I cannot cuss man who is made in his image. Now, mind you, for 29 years, that's all that came out of my mouth. But when I word that word, it blew up inside me. I said, man, you're so right. I go to church on Sundays, and I praise God, and then I go home, and I cuss at my wife, or I cuss at my kids, or I cuss at my neighbor, or somebody cuts me off, and I cuss at them. And the Holy Spirit began to do a work in me to the point where it hurts my ears now when I hear it. Like, I'm like, like, what's up with that? Even in school, I work in high school. The kids are like constantly. I worked at Rikers. I got, I got inmates having to do push-ups for cussing in my classroom. I'm like, yo, drop down. Give me, give me time. What's the problem? I'm like, like, that was it. Come to my classroom. And after a while, the inmates that came to my classroom at Rikers, they were like, yo, Mr. Rodriguez, don't play that. Drop down. Give him down. Otherwise, you got to get out of his room. Like the old inmates, they policed each other. Why? Because I let them know that you're created in the image of God, and God didn't use those words when he created. He doesn't use those words to address you. So it changed. The true repentance is just that. There is an action that took place. I was doing something. I turned towards God. The word came to me, and it changed me. So again, what does true repentance look like? i got to get through this really quick. There are four elements of true biblical repentance. The first thing is, True repentance involves a sense of awareness, awareness of one's own guilt, sinfulness, and helplessness. This is important for you to realize that. Zacchaeus realized what he had done. Anybody in the Bible that when they're confronted with their own sin, they can't say, ah, nah, that's not me. How many times have you said that? Nah, that's not me. You know, I'm so grateful for my mother who loved me with this unconditional love that, that, that I can be caught on camera with my hand in the cookie jar, handcuffed, and my mother would say, that's not my son's hand. <laughs> that's the unconditional love of a mother. But God sees it and he says, if you keep doing that, then I can't, I can't work with you. I can't work with you because you're loving that more than you love me. And there's a scripture here found in Psalm 51, verses 4 through 10. It's long, but hear this, because this is written by David himself. David, who was king. David, who was a man after God's own heart. David, who was one of the greatest kings that ever lived. We know his story. Most of you remember his story because of Bathsheba. He saw, he wanted, and he went out and got it. And in the process, committed a crime in which he killed the husband of the person that he took into his bed. And he writes this. A year to two after he writes this. He doesn't write this immediately because he has to get confronted by his sin. So as he is confronted with his sin, a couple of years later, he pens this psalm and he gets this. Again, true repentance requires an awareness of one's own guilt. And look what he says. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Like I don't have to go any further. 
That is true repentance, realizing that you have sinned against God. You haven't sinned only against me, you've sinned against God. So, so when you realize that, that what true repentance looks like. You're saying against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Why? Because God is everywhere at all times. What you're doing, how you're behaving, you, you don't get away from God. You just don't get away from God. No, no matter where you go, God is already there before you've gotten there. Now, this is sobering for you. I understand that because when I began to hear this in my life, it began to do something for me. I began to realize, wait a minute. I'm taking God with me to these places. I'm taking God along with me to, these, to do these things. And God is just shaking his head saying, when, when are you going to realize that I am the only thing you need? When are you going to realize that I'm sufficient? He goes on to say in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. There is a brokenness that happens. And then verse 10 closes, Create in me a clean heart. A clean heart. There's something that has to happen in our hearts. And you're saying, well, you know, I'm not that far along. Listen, I got it. But are you in that are you working? Like, are you moving towards him or are you still here taking selfies, carousing, you know, keeping it on a leash, thinking that you can control it while it's controlling you? Because this is what, this is, listen, when you're here, you lack the power of God in your life. So you're never going to be able to overcome. Because you're saying God is a liar, that he can't help you with your sin. And the reality is that Jesus came to die at the cross to take on our sins, past, present, and future. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I am not pious. I don't got wings. I don't walk on water. I don't got a halo. Like, I don't do those things. But I am a sinner who sins less. As I walk with God, I've learned to sin less. I'm not pursuing it. In my past life, I woke up looking for sin, planning for sin, pursuing it. Now I wake up praising God, rejoicing in what he's doing in my life and in the life of the people that I see in this room. People say, that, oh, I can't see God. Well, look in this room. Look in this room about the stories that you have in this room. I believe that the stories we have are a tapestry of hope for those who say, I can't do it. You can't do it? You can't get clean? We got some clean time up in this room. Like we do. Like we have some lives that we've lived, and how do you get up? Jesus. I turned away from that, and I turned towards God. Now, I may be here, in, right? But I'm still walking in that direction. Now, don't look back. Don't desire that. You have to ask God to rip it out of you. Now, when you say that and you pray that, just be aware that when God rips something out of your life, it hurts. So if you're in this room and you want me to pray for your relationships, don't ask me to pray. Because I'm going to ask God to rip him out of your life. And rip her out of your life. And then when he does that, oh, pastor, why did you pray that, pastor? Why did you do that to me? Because it's going to hurt. 
There are lifestyles that we live when God begins to work in our lives and begin to remove certain things. We hurt. Why? Because it was so such a part of our identity. Like when God called me out of the mess, he called me out. My, my family was still running. They were still running the streets. And every time they would say, hey, where you at? I said, nah, I'm going to church. You're a church boy now? I said, yeah, I'm going to church, man. I'm done with this. Right? No, you can't. Right? So, so, so you got to understand that there's always this thing. Now, again, I got to get through this. Number two, true repentance apprehends or takes hold of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. The same psalm, he says this, have mercy upon me, Psalm 51.1, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That's exactly what Jesus does when we repent and turn to God. It says this, he shows us his loving kindness. He shows us his tender mercies. We deserve to be punished. He steps in, blocks out our transgressions. You know what you get when you come to Christ? You're born again, a new birth, a clean slate. Now, when you come to Christ, don't assume that everything's going to be hokey-dory. Right? A couple of amens up in here, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like when I came to Christ, when I came to Christ, I had to deal with 29 years of dealing with life on my terms. Dealing with this. I had a personal relationship with sin. And it fed me well. It treated me well. I didn't want to break up that relationship. Especially when I started to hear that coming here, I would have to suffer. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't like this deal, it's two for one, I don't like, I want to stay here. But when I came to Christ, there was something that happened in my life so profound that I realized, wait a minute, I got to walk in this direction. And guys, I've suffered, but I've suffered with Christ. And in suffering in Christ, there's something that happens. There is this comfort. There is this peace. There is this assurance that you get. Listen, I've lost my father. I lost my brother. I lost my sister. You know, I've gone from here financially to here financially. Like, like I learned how to clip coupons. I stopped buying Wonder Bread, and I bought the 99 cent bread. Like, like I was clipping coupons. You know, I had to go to social services. You know, I, I left. God just took me through this valley because he needed me to understand that I didn't have to depend on those things. I needed to depend fully in him. And along the way of taking me out of this valley, he's bringing me up, and he's bringing me up, and the story is still being told. And your story has been penned in heaven, and it's still being told. If you know anything about storytelling, there's a rise in action. There's this climax that you reach, and then there's this descending thing. But let me tell you what happens. Chapter to chapter, that happens in your life. There are moments where you're up here, and there are moments where you're down here. Guess what? The God who's up here is the God down here. God doesn't save us and then say, hey, go figure it out on your own. <laughs> go ahead. Love you. Mm -hmm. That's it. You're saved. Go. No, he doesn't do that. He is with us always. But the thing that connects us with him is our repentance. You see, people don't realize the foundation of our faith is repentance. You have to understand that Jesus is who he says he is, has done what he said he has done, and will continue to do what he said he will do. Right now, on your behalf, Jesus is interceding to the Father on your behalf. It is the heart of Jesus that, the, again, he saved you from sin. He is saving you from sin daily. And every time you trip up, your responsibility is at that moment 
to repent, to turn away from the sin and turn towards God. I told you earlier I am a sinner who sins less. I don't wake up in the morning looking for it. I don't. I look for opportunities that God is going to give me to bring glory to his name. Amen? It's important for us to understand that. Now, number three, true repentance means a change of attitude Woo. and action regarding sin. It's hatred of sin turns the repentant person away from his or her sin to God. This, according to this, I have to have a different attitude about this. This is not good. This is not what I need. This is not going to, in fact, it's going to temporarily satisfy something in my life that I should be depending on God for. You should understand that your validation comes from God, not from people, for the people pleasers in this room. Stop it. Stop it. Like, stop doing that. Stop doing that. The one that died on the cross for you was Jesus. Oh, but you don't understand. I'm a type B personality, and I need people. I'm social. No, you're not. You're stupid. <laughs> How can you depend on someone else to give you what God can only give you? You want peace? You go to God. You want comfort? You go to God. Like, like you want love? You go to God. And he said, Pastor, it's easy for you to say, no, it's not. No, it's not. I struggle with these things, too but I've turned away from sin. And when I'm feeling this way and I'm being pulled in a certain direction that I know I shouldn't go, I say, wait a minute, I've been there. I've done that. I don't want to do that again. The Bible says that his mercies are new every single morning. So I want to experience him every single morning. There is a new song that he puts in us, a song that we sing and it resonates in our lives. People need to know that God is alive and well and in the business of changing people's lives. But it's going to require you to repent. It's going to require you to stop saying your story. Stop getting caught up with the emotion. Stop saying, oh, I messed up, but staying here. Oh, I messed up. I messed up. I don't know what to do. I messed up. Oh, man. I don't, I don't Come on. Do you know what you got to do? The Bible talks about the stress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. That's found in 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is the message. I love how it reads. It says, it gives us back, it gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. Listen to me. This is painful. It is. Right? Loving someone that doesn't love you back, it's painful. Caring for someone who doesn't care about you, it's painful. People tell me as I counsel people in relationships, I ask them the question, you know, uh, how much are you, you know, in a relationship? People say, well, you know, 50-50. And I'm saying, what happens with the other 50 that you don't give into your relationship? You keep it in reserve for somebody else? Like, what do you do? It's either you're 100 in or you're not. Right? Like, you got to give all to relationships, right? You say, nah, I got to give a little piece at a time because you don't know. Listen, that's on you. Your picker is off, that's on you. I got that. But at the end of the day, as you're walking with God, God gives you discernment. God gives you discernment. I tell my guys all the time, you smell funny. And it's not that they stink, but sin has a certain scent. So when I roll up on you and I say, you smell funny, <laughs> it's because you ain't right. 
Now, not because of anything except that the Holy Spirit gives you discernment about people. And maybe you don't. Maybe you're so desperate that you're throwing discernment out the window and that's why you get yourself in trouble. But discernment allows you to see the fruit of people. The Bible says by their fruit they shall be known. If they're hanging out with sin, then there's certain words they're going to use. Certain behaviors. Even today is so revealing. You want to know something about somebody? Go on their social media page. Scroll. Scroll. And you'll see because we're stupid. And we got to post everything. You know? It's, it's, it's just crazy. Okay. I'm going to get out of here. Last one. True repentance results in radical and persistent pursuit of holy living, walking with God in obedience to his commands. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. It doesn't mean that um, we elevate ourselves to a place of better than. It just simply states that I'm living a separate consecrated life. You see, I don't hang out with a certain group of people because my association with them will cause me to be tainted by their behaviors. Everybody got that? Right? Like, like after a while, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's got to be a duck, right? So, so, so here I am hanging out with people who are doing all kinds of things you know, and I can't suddenly say, oh, I'm trying to minister to them when I'm acting like them. That's not what Paul meant when he said, you know, to the Roman, I was a Roman, to the Greek, I was a Greek. That's not what he meant. He meant that he understood them so that he could then minister to them. Right? A lot of people say, well, how else am I going to know? You're acting just like them. Right? So you have to be mindful of that, that it says walking with God in obedience to his commands. And then it goes on to say in 2 Timothy, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're in this room and you're using the name of Christ and you're not moving away from sin and towards God, you're a hypocrite. I know you didn't come to church to hear that. But I'm going to tell you the truth all the time. Because I know what it was like to sit there as people were speaking and I was still doing those things. I've been at this for 30, 32 years. The first five years of walking with the Lord were the most craziest, insane, because the grip that sin had on my life but I got around a bunch of people who really, really, really were in love with God, understood the power of prayer and began to walk me. They became my guardrails and began to walk me like God knew that I would be standing in front doing this back then and he needed to put people around me to help me and to walk me through this process. Listen, if you're still trying to do this alone, on your own, there's a reason why you're still here. This is strong. This is strong. Especially if you've been doing it for a long time. For you in this room who've been lying for a long time, you don't know the truth. 
You've lied so much that you don't know the truth. You're like, is that true? Uh, for those who, guys you know, and girls who've been carousing and, and looking for love in all the wrong places, you don't understand what love is because you haven't given God a chance to reveal what love is. That there is a power that it has, but let me tell you what. Greater is the power of God to break the chains and deliver us out of sin. God sent a Navy SEALs to get me out of this. Like, like he sent people to pull me out of that and then keep me. The, the moment that I got saved and said yes to Jesus Christ, and I still remember this in the church. The next day as I was leaving to work, carrying my tools down, two brothers from the church came out of their cars and said, you're Gus? And I said, yeah. He said, we want to pray with you today. From, listen to me, that's unheard of. He said, we were from the church and you gave your heart to Jesus yesterday, and we know today is going to be the first day you're going to try to live for him. Let's pray for you. They got in their car and they left after they prayed for me. Like God has a way of caring for us. Listen, and if you're in this room, he's placed you in a community where people want to love you. When you say, no, I'm still doing this, I'm still that. No, no. We love you. God loves you. And just in case, we know what you're doing. You know, we pray for you and we hope.